Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. I'm glad to be here this morning. Uh, Gary and I were talking about possible dates I could come and what might be a good weekend, and then he said to me, you know, Labor Day weekend, a lot of people will probably be away, and I think that's the best weekend to have you at the congregation (laughs) because you could do the least damage. So we arrived at this day. And I didn't realize, I haven't been in L.A. for three or four years. And coming here, I saw a billboard. I don't know if you've seen it about the hospital where you can text the ER to see how long the waiting times are. I absolutely do not get that. I just, I don't get it. You know, suppose that you're home and somebody's having a heart attack. You know, oh, I I don't think, just a minute. We'll text and see how long. No sense in rushing down there if we're going to have to wait. So They said 45 minutes. You want coffee or something before we go there? What's the set? I, I just don't get it. If you can text and find out how long it is, maybe you don't need the ER. That's all I'm saying. And uh, this morning, too, I was sharing about uh, marriage. My wife and I have been married 40 years, and I've discovered... I've discovered the secret of that in my marriage, and the secret is that my wife literally has not listened to one thing I've said in 40 years. I'm not talking about, you know, would you do this or would you do that? I'm I'm talking about literally anything that I have discussed with her in 40 years, she has no memory of. I'll tell her the same story every day, and she she always goes, "Uh uh-huh. And for like 38 years, I assumed uh-huh meant I heard and understood what you're saying. But uh-huh really means to her, I'm doing something. I could care less about what you're saying. But if I say uh-huh, you will leave me alone. And that's a secret to our marriage. 38 years of uh-huh. And it was very disheartening when I discovered that's actually what she meant. But it's the secret to our marriage. What can I say? I always like to tell a story about Gary, my great friend, and I would tell the same story whether he was here or not, but I've known Gary for almost 30 years, like 29.6, and if you know Gary, he is incredibly smart. Gary is really intelligent, and I can tell you, like, in 30 years, I would always say to Gary, hey, do you know? And he would say, yes. He always, it was so frustrating because no matter what I would tell him, he already knew it. One day, uh, I was in Maryland visiting him, and we went to go see someone in the congregation who was sick. 
we went to the hospital and when we went into the hospital we had to see the head nurse on the floor because it was not visiting hours she wasn't letting anybody in I mean she was really tough it's not visiting hours you cannot come in so Gary and I start to protest and we tell her but we're pastors we can visit now because we're pastors and there was no way that she believed that Gary and I were pastors absolutely not we just could not convince her and finally we both had I forget we had some kind of something in our wallets and we finally showed it to her and then she was going to believe that we were pastors and we go down the floor and she said to us well you can't blame me because when two brothers come up and tell me they're pastors I wouldn't believe it and immediately Gary and I said at the same time we are not brothers so that started a whole nother argument about whether we really were brothers or not and we told her look we're just like almost the same age we have the same birthday we both come from Jersey that's why you and she would not believe us so finally we had to produce identification to show that we indeed had different names so we went from there down into the parking lot and I said to Gary hey we must be doppelgangers and Gary said to me what's that and it was like the hallelujah chorus went off in my head. And I said to him in my most condescending tone, you don't know what doppelganger means? And for the rest of that weekend, I worked doppelganger into every single conversation we had. So if you ask Gary about that, he will deny it, but it's only because he just doesn't like that image of himself of not knowing everything. <clears throat> This morning, I'd like to look at a section in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospels are just incredible, true literature. Give us an insight into our Messiah, how he lived, what he did, what he thought. And in the Gospels, we find the person of the Messiah. We find not only the divine Messiah, but the person of Messiah, and get a little insight into his character. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, we'll look at, from the moment that the Messiah stepped into the spotlight, uh, maybe I should say into the lantern light, I don't think they had spotlights back then, he was the center of controversy. Not the total picture of his ministry, but a lot of controversy surrounded him, especially among the religious leaders. But what else could you expect when God himself came to talk to people who valued their own religion above their God? What else could result besides controversy? I'm not one of the people today who thinks it's bad to be called religious. I know there's a lot of believers that people say to them, are you religious? No, 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 no. Not religious. I have a relationship. And all that does to me is confuse people because they think now you're talking about your social status and they're really talking about something totally different. To me, when people say, are you religious? If I say no, it's almost like people saying, uh, I'm spiritual. I have no idea what that means. If somebody says to me, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm totally confused. 
And I think a lot of unbelievers are that way too. Are you religious? No, I'm not. I'm in, I'm in a relationship. Yeah, I know that you have a girlfriend, but that's not really what I'm talking about. They're a little confused. It's kind of like the people that come up to you too and say that I am spiritual, but I'm not part of an organized religion. To me, that immediately tells me that that person has nothing to do with any religion in any way, shape, or form and never has had anything to do with religion. Because if you're involved with religion at all, you know the term organized religion is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as an organized religion. I know, I've been part of religion. It's never organized. But what's the problem with being religious? Why does it bother us so much? There's really no problem with being religious. The problem with being religious is if your religion trumps God. That's the problem with religion. And when people ask me if I'm religious, I say, yeah, and let me tell you what that means to be religious. It's a religion that does not trump God. This is what happened in the time of the Messiah. Religion was trumping God. Many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes didn't have room for God. Not all of them. I mean, there were some good Pharisees, good Sadducees, good scribes, people who were ready to hear the good news of the Messiah, but for the majority of them, the religion was more important. They came up with a set of rules. And the rabbis thought that these rules were going to bring people closer to God. But the truth is, those rules kept people from God. They gave a false picture of who God was. The rules started out with a good purpose, but they wound up doing some damage. And I've heard many, many preachers talk about, uh, you know, the Pharisees did this and the Pharisees did that. The Pharisees were not the only ones that came up with bad religion. There's been bad religion throughout the ages. Look at the medieval times some of the worst religion you could ever imagine. It was a time that for the right price, you could buy a right relationship with God. If you weren't sure of exactly where you stood, you'd give some money and a priest would pray for you or forgive your sin or, or put you in the right direction. It was a time that people came up with a good idea of maybe walking to the services on your knees was something that God would desire or beating yourself with a whip. Some of these great ideas came up during the Middle Ages. And it even continues today. I was not sure if I should say this or not, but then I thought to myself, <clears throat> next week I won't be here and Gary will, so why not say it? But personally, if you know of the Mark Driscoll, I think this was a part of the difficulty he had. He had some rules and some teachings that really did not reflect the character of God. Now, let me tell you, first of all, I am not a personal friend of Mark. I've not had personal relationships with him. I've read very few things he wrote. I am the last person in the world who's in a position to judge him. I'm not saying any of those things. All I'm saying is that some of the ideas that he put out that became the rules for things in his church, I don't really think reflected the character and the nature of God. And because of that, people were confused about who God was. And to me, that's the root of bad religion, giving a false picture of God. It's one of the reasons why the ministry of Messiah was so crucial and so unique. 
because people had a chance to encounter God himself. And we also have that same opportunity, not to be physically present, but through the writings, we also can have an encounter with God himself. We don't have to wonder what he was like. We don't have to worry if we're on the right path. When somebody tells us this is what God desires, we can go to the source itself and see. Is that who God is? Is that what God would require? The Messiah made a real splash when he entered into the world. He broke a lot of the well-known religious rules of the day. Caused a lot of controversy. He was known to eat with sinners. That was a big no-no. Not just eat with sinners, but afterwards he hung around with them. The Messiah was not one to eat and run. He was one to eat and hang around. Broke two rules at the same time. He allowed his disciples to pick grain as they walked through the fields on the Sabbath if they were hungry, to relieve their hunger. He healed a paralyzed man that was lowered through the roof. And then on top of that, he forgave the man's sins. He broke rule after rule after rule, and the religious leaders were not happy with him and his growing influence. But even more than that, they felt he had to be dealt with. And that's where we find him this Shabbat morning in Mark chapter 3. We see that he's in the synagogue. Most likely it was the synagogue in Capernaum. And Mark starts to give us the story. He, Messiah, entered into a synagogue... And there was a man whose hand was withered. Now, also Luke and Matthew talk about this event. But they add the detail that it was after Messiah had finished teaching. Many times in the ancient world, if there was a guest, for example, Israel Cohen showed up, he would be called up to the bema and, you know, what does God have to say? And he would be allowed to come and address a congregation. Same thing is true back here. Messiah was uh, a preacher, traveled around. He was invited up to the Bema. He talked for a little while. When he finished speaking, Mark says there was a man with a withered hand there. The word that he uses says that the injury was not something from birth. It was not a birth defect. It was something that happened afterwards due to a specific incident. It could have been a disease. It could have been an injury at work. Whatever it is, he uses the word to let us know that it was something he was not born with. There's some information from an extra-biblical source, the Gospel of Hebrews. Uh, Many of you have probably not heard of it, and there's a good reason that you haven't. But in the Gospel of Hebrews, it mentions that this man was a stonemason. True? I don't know. doesn't really matter. Luke tells us, Dr. Luke giving his diagnosis, that it was the man's right hand. So you can imagine how difficult this would be living in the time of Messiah. There was no disability, no social safety network. He was a man who made a living with his hands, and one of his hands was no good. And that would most likely mean that this man would be reduced to begging to take care of his family. There was really no hope for him. And that morning in Capernaum, he's sitting in among the congregation with uh, his withered hand. You might say that he was doubly disadvantaged. 
And it seems that everybody at the service was aware of his appearance. And then Mark says this, They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. The they that Mark is speaking about were the Pharisees who were in the service. They were watching him. And the idea that Mark portrays is not openly watching someone, but rather they were looking at him out of the corner of their eye. They were spying on him. They didn't want him to know that they were watching him. They didn't want anybody else to know what they were thinking. But they kind of gave sidelong glances to see him and to see that Messiah saw him. There's some people who conjecture that maybe the Pharisees even brought him there on purpose. We don't really know from the text, but we do know they were aware of his presence and they wanted to see what he was going to do. For the Pharisees, one of the rules of their religion was that you could not heal a person on the Sabbath. And it's interesting, I personally am no expert on Shabbat laws, but one of the interesting caveats to that law is that you were allowed to keep someone at the same level of unhealth, but you could not improve it. And to me, I mean, I'm not that smart of a person. I I always wrestle with this. How would you know what would be just enough to keep somebody at the same level of illness without making them better? I mean, that's really... Could you imagine today, like, you give somebody two aspirin when they don't feel well, and then they... How do you feel? Oh, much better. Darn it. I didn't want you to feel much better. I wanted you to stay the same. Maybe I should have given you one aspirin. I I, I don't know how that works out in practical terms, but it was acceptable to leave someone at their level of suffering, but not to relieve it. That was the thinking here. And when this man with the withered hand came, they wanted to watch the Messiah because they wanted to see what he was going to do. Would he break the rule? It would give them an opportunity to accuse him. And not just accuse him to say something about him, but to them it was a legal matter. If the Messiah broke a rule that they considered a law, they would be able to put him on trial as a lawbreaker. It would be a way that they would be able to remove him, to get him out of the way. It wasn't just his growing popularity that bothered these people. It was his growing influence. That's what really bothered them. They had carefully crafted a religion. And this Messiah came and was disturbing their religion. This uh, pastor, John Corson, describes this scene this way, these few sentences. They did not come to worship. They came to watch. They did not come to commune with the Lord, but to confront the Lord. They did not come to find fruit, but to find fault. And they sat there waiting, knowing that Jesus, moved with compassion, would surely do something to violate their Sabbath rules. Nothing in the Old Testament, nothing in the writings of Moses, say you cannot heal on the Sabbath. What's prevented on the Sabbath is working. What Messiah was doing was healing. 
what these religious leaders had done was come up with a whole list of rules against working. They knew how to handle that subject, but they did not have anything to handle healers because they had never run across a healer. So when Messiah came in and began healing, there was really kind of a, an area that they did not cover. So they decided to lump it under the idea of working and say that Messiah, through his healing, was working. Mark talks about the hardness of heart, and we'll cover that in a minute or so. But think about this. Mark says that they were watching him out of the corner of their eye to see if he would heal the man. And I hadn't really thought about that before, but when you think about that, it doesn't say they were wondering if he had the ability to heal the man. They said they wanted to see if he would. Totally different concept. They wanted to see if he would literally break one of their rules. Imagine that. They didn't doubt that he could heal the man. But that was lost on them. Even a miraculous healing. We don't care about that. We care more about whether you will against one of our rules. That's a real... If God was here and he did this, then I would believe. Or why doesn't God do this? Or why doesn't God do that right now? It really doesn't matter whether he does it right now or not. Have you ever shared with someone who is not a believer something that really is incredible that's happened in your life? They really don't care because their mind is made up in advance. And sometimes, just like with these guys, they get real upset. And then you know that it's really a spiritual battle. When you share the good news about the Son of God who's come to bring salvation to the world and people get outrageously angry, that's a spiritual battle. And that's what happened here, that these guys were in a spiritual battle. They didn't care if he could. They only were concerned if he would. And then the Messiah, I like this. He says, he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Literally, it means to rise in the middle. Have you ever been to Israel? Okay, if you've ever been to Israel, I'm going to ask you to do something very, very hard. I'm going to ask you to try to remember something that happened when you were there. So, I know it's a little tough on a holiday weekend, but... And if you haven't gone to Israel, you really should go. And uh, Gary and I have been talking about taking a group for a while. So, if you've never gone, you should really think about coming with us. And if you've already gone, you should come with us because you'll have a better time. So... And then you'll be so jealous when everybody else gets back. But what happened in Israel, if you've been to the synagogue at Capernaum, uh, built after the time of Messiah, but still, or they have the Nazareth village. I don't know if you've been there or not, but they have a synagogue that they built there at the end of the tour, and they take in the synagogue for a few minutes. But the synagogues in ancient Israel had the seating on both sides. 
they had the front section, they had the bima up here, and the seating was down both sides. So when Messiah called to the men and literally said, rise up into the middle or come into the middle, that's where the man went. Everybody would have been on both sides and had a perfect view of him, not just sitting there, but walking down the steps, coming right into the middle. It's pretty amazing to be on center stage. That's where the man was. Uh, Years ago, 10, 12 years ago, my wife and I went to Circle in the Square Theater in New York. And that has the stage in the center, and the seats are literally all the way around it. Uh, Not ideal seating, but Al Pacino was going to be there, and how could you pass that up? So we went. But when he came down into the middle, you could see all the action perfectly, and that's what happened in the synagogue. Messiah called this man up into the middle, and there he was, right on center stage. And I like it, too, because the Pharisees are spying out of the corner of their eye to see what he's going to do. And Messiah, he knows all of this, and he just does everything real openly. Hey, you, come on, come into the middle. And there he goes, he stands out there with his withered hand. The man that the Pharisees were secretly acknowledging, the man that everyone was aware of his presence, now he's right in the center. Messiah calls him out. And when he came down, Messiah asked everyone a question. And he said, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill it? And I like that because Messiah, he lets them know that he knows what's on their mind. And he asks them a question that's pretty impossible to answer. I mean, how could you possibly answer this? Is it better to do good or bad? Is it better to save or to kill? The answer's pretty obvious. But it's Matthew that records this story, which you all know. It's at this time when he asks that question that he tells them the story about the sheep that falls into the pit. He said, all of you who are here, if you had a sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath, you would immediately go and get him out. And if you have compassion like that on your animals, how could you not have compassion on this man? A man who has a real disability. A man who has to beg. A man that can't take care of his family. And I have the opportunity and the ability to help him. Shouldn't I do it? That's a pretty obvious question. And then the question we'll find out later is not an academic question. To save a life or to kill it. It's a literal question. Because the Pharisees were thinking about how they could kill the Messiah. And they were having these thoughts on the Sabbath. So the Messiah let them know, not only did he know about this current situation, but he was also aware of their future plans. And he's bringing them out in the open before everybody. And Mark tells us the response when he says this to them. Hey guys, you have a sheep, gets hurt, would you help it? And you could see the people that aren't really aware of all the things going on. Yeah, of course, yeah, I've done that myself. Who wouldn't do that? Well, why wouldn't you help him? Because a rule in your religion prevents you from doing that? That's not really how God is. And Mark tells us, but they kept silent. What could they possibly say? The only thing on their mind was, I hope he heals him so that we can accuse him 
and then we can destroy him. And Jesus says this, looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. I looked at this because I was not aware before I had looked at this passage. It's the only time that mentions Jesus getting angry. That's pretty unusual, right? All the gospel passages, the only time we've seen him angry, it's the only time it says he became angry at them. It made him mad because of the hardness of their heart. And that is another thing about the character of God. He gets angry when there's good that could be done and it's not done. You think about today. I mean, I don't know. I in Arizona. If you're well, let, let me do this because this is much more than statewide thing. If you're on Facebook, I would say I don't know. 70% of the people I know on Facebook, they're always posting something about the mistreatment of animals. I mean, I don't know what it is. I, listen, I have pets. I think it's terrible to do something to an animal. Especially the cruelty. I, I don't know. It just it shows people's sin. But think here even of people. There are people who would go out of their way to save a pet, but don't think about the refugees that are living in refugee camps around the world. I mean, to me that just doesn't add up. Not that one excuses the other. I'm just saying that I have a problem with that. But here the Messiah says he gets angry because they are only concerned about their religion and not concerned about helping someone. They have no compassion on a suffering human being. You think about how crazy that is. What kind of religion would not allow you to have compassion on a suffering human being? And there are a few religions because I don't want to inflame anyone so I won't mention any by name but they might pop into your mind what kind of religion would that be I'll tell you one thing it certainly is not a reflection of the character of God because here we see Messiah and he saw someone with a problem and he had compassion on it so much so that even though he knew what was going to happen he knew the thoughts of some people he couldn't help himself he had to help that person And he calls him down. He gets angry because of the hardness of hearts of people that had no compassion for anyone else. And he calls him down. And then it says, too, that he also was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Messiah grieves at sin. And who would know sin better? He knew what was in the minds of all those people that they were his literal enemies committed to his destruction. But he was saddened over their sin he was angry at the hardness of heart to another human being and grieved at his sin the words that are used here in the Greek are interesting because the anger is kind of a flash of anger but the word that's used for grieving is an ongoing process he always grieved at the sin of others And it's an interesting picture of who he was as a person and what he did and what motivated him. He was in a constant state of sorrow because of the sin of people, even the sin of his enemies. That's the character of God. For me personally, I have not come to this plateau yet. The sin of my enemies still kind of just makes me mad. I'd like to grieve, but it depends. I can't grieve at the time. I only have one emotion. It's not anger coupled with grief. It's anger 
followed lately, later, with grief, depending upon how they behave afterwards. It's uh, complicated, but uh, we're on the way. But God is not like that. He gives a chance for the man to be healed. And it says, He stretched out his hand, and the hand was restored. And I, I try to picture this in my mind. Here's this man with the withered hand, comes to service. He steps down into center stage. The Messiah tells him, open his hand. And when he does, his hand is perfectly healed. Just absolutely incredible, showing the grace and graciousness of God. I wonder, too, if I was there, what would my response be? I mean, would I be filled with awe? Would I be wondering? What what would my response be? I'd certainly be shocked and surprised. Most of the time in the scriptures, we see that people are frightened. I mean, it would frighten me if somebody did that a little bit. But the Pharisees have a totally different relationship. Luke tells us the Pharisees were filled with rage and discussed what they might do to the Messiah. Filled with rage. That is such a strange response. Why? Why would they be filled with rage? Because the Messiah was ruining their religion. That's what they were so angry about. When the Messiah came, he did not only turn over tables in the temple. He turned over their carefully crafted religion. And that was the final straw for them. We have this religion that we've developed that's really nice, that tells who God is and keeps everyone in their place, and you're disturbing it. And they were really unhappy about it. You think about the difference to show the hardness of their hearts. Think of the event that happened in John chapter 9. In there, the Messiah heals a man that was born blind. Now, this was a really big deal because the idea of healing a man that was born blind was supposed to be one of the signs that the Messiah would bring. So when Jesus comes into town, he sees a man born blind, and he heals him. It causes a major controversy. And they bring the man to the Pharisees because they were the ones that were going to make sure that this miracle was legitimate. And if it was legitimate, what it meant was that this was the Messiah. It was something the Pharisees did not want to see happen. So they begin to argue with the man. Remember, they ask the man, how did you get healed? Who did it? What happened? They go through the whole thing. And finally, they have to come to the conclusion that he was born blind, as far as they know. And then somebody comes up with the brilliant idea of getting his parents, because maybe the man's a liar. Let's go and get his parents. So they bring the parents. The parents are really smart. And they say, you know, he's a big boy. Ask him. Don't ask us. And they ask him, yes, So now he's healed. But the Pharisees still do not want to accept this miracle. And they say, well, there must be something else involved here. But some of the people were saying, well, if this man's a sinner, how could he do a sign of the Messiah? So the crowd's a little divided. And people want to see what's going to happen. But here, on this day, in this morning, there's no division in the crowd. They're against him totally. Because it says, immediately, the Pharisees went out and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might support him. The Herodians were people who supported Herod and his family. One of the things that Herod wanted to do was to bring Hellenism 
into Israel. Hellenism, as some people may suppose, is not a special love for Helen Hunt. Uh, Though I do like Helen Hunt very much, it's not the technical definition of Hellenism. Hellenism is the idea of bringing in Greek values, Greek values for living into the land of Israel. Pharisees did not want Greek values in Israel. They wanted Jewish values in Israel. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were always coming head to head and having arguments and disagreements. But on this particular day, they don't. On this particular day, they come together. On this particular day, enemies who cannot stand each other put aside their differences in order that they might destroy a common enemy, the Messiah. You see that beginning to happen in our world in general. Is that not the work of the devil? People who cannot stand each other will join together today to destroy the things of God. It's a very frightening thing to me. To me, not much further you can go than that. But you see, every day on the news, every day in our news in this country, people uniting together against the things of God, putting aside their differences for, to them, a higher cause. You see it around the world, the way that people are treated. You see the alliances that are made today. Why? To oppose the things of God. A real sign to me of the coming of the end times. Here in this case, the Pharisees' religion was so important to them that they were willing, humanly speaking, to destroy God in order to see it continue. That is a real hardness of heart. It's what bad religion does. Bad religion trumps God. Bad religion trumps the word of God. I don't think it's bad to be religious. I think we should all be religious. But I think that our religion should be one that points people to our all-loving, miracle-working, prophecy-fulfilling Messiah, the Son of God. Let's not let our rules block our picture of God. Let's help people to have an encounter with the real God through our religion and see who he is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our Messiah. I thank you for his greatness. What an incredible Messiah we have. I thank you that he shows us who you are. You are a God who is filled with love and compassion. You are a God who does not show himself through rules, but shows himself as he is. This morning I pray for each one of us. Let us be religious in the sense that honors you. I pray that we might have a clear testimony for others. I pray for the condition of our world that it seems that enemies unite to prevent the person and the works of God. But we know that they are destined to fail. Help us to have courage to continue in the way that we should go. I pray also this morning for a blessing on Beth Ariel. I've known this congregation for decades, and you knew this congregation before it even came to reality. I pray that you bless each person here, that you give them a desire to serve you first and ultimately, 
and that then they may be able to and be willing to serve the congregation. I pray for the leadership of the congregation. Give them wisdom and insight so that your will will be clear to them. I pray, too, that you would make their path very clear in the future and that you'd be with them. Father, we know that the purpose of this congregation is to exalt you and to help people find you. I pray that you strengthen this congregation to do just that. And I pray for this blessing in the name of our compassionate, miracle-working, loving Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.